Hi there. Thanks for checking out The Mod Pod, a podcast by the new medical trade publication, Modern Optometry. Mod was created for optometrists looking to embrace the medical model and practice at the top of their license. You're busy, and we get that. That's why Mod is offering select articles from each issue in audio form, so you can stay current on topics that are important to you while you commute to work, exercise, tackle housework, or whatever deeds are in your multitasking routine. Modern Optometry has a strong concentration on the medical model of practice, while also covering topics such as contact lenses, dry eye, myopia management, and more. It also features collaborative eye content within its pages. Think surgery and ODMD relations, so it's different than anything and currently out there. This episode of the Mod Pod features four articles from our debut March issue that were specially selected by Mod co-chief medical editors Justin Schweitzer and Leslie O'Dell and narrated by the authors themselves. To start, Daniel Epstein of Mount Sinai St. Luke's in New York City reads his cover focus article, Embracing Medical Optometry. Medical optometry is not the future. Medical optometry is never forgetting that behind every refractive complaint is a person with two, or sometimes one, but never three eyes. Medical optometry is what we all do every day. A paradigm that has permeated optometry is that practitioners practice either strictly refractive optometry or full-scope optometry. I believe, however, that even the most refraction-oriented optometrist practices medical optometry to some extent. If we think of all eye care as a spectrum, with refractive needs to the left and refractive care on the right, most optometrists will fall to the right of the leftmost notch. Merely being cognizant that poor glucose control can lead to fluctuating vision, that cataracts can decrease visual potential, or that dry eye can reduce vision even when the patient's refraction is spot on, is practicing medical optometry. Some optometrists tend to practice toward the right end of the spectrum, providing care for patients with advanced ocular conditions or complex multi-organ disease and co-managing patients who require surgical care. In several states, optometrists have redefined the spectrum by also branching into surgical care. With increasing market competition, changes to healthcare, and an aging U.S. population, the average optometrist needs to push further right on the refractive medical spectrum to properly care for patients and to stay economically viable. Adapting to changing landscapes. The online sale of glasses and contact lenses continues to commoditize the refractive portion of optometric care. The leftmost point of our refractive medical spectrum has been eaten up by companies such as Warby Parker, 1-800-CONTACTS, and Zenni Optical. Glasses and contact lenses have become less like medical devices and more like tools that don't require expertise to prescribe, fit, and dispense. This increased competition has led to decreased sales and or decreased materials pricing in some practices. As technology continues to evolve, so does the competition. With the advent of online exams and prescription renewals, the leftmost point of the refractive medical spectrum continues to be degraded. The commoditization of refractive materials and services is perpetuated not only by online competitors and patients, but also by insurance companies shrinking reimbursements. Some insurance companies have started to partner with online retailers, further eroding the relationships between patients and their eye care professionals. As the refractive care landscape has changed, so has the medical eye care realm. New techniques and technologies help eye care professionals to diagnose and treat conditions earlier and more effectively than in the past. 
Corneal cross-linking for keratoconus is the best example of this today. We now have a successful treatment that helps prevent significant disease progression and vision loss. Due to the availability of this treatment, we must now be even more vigilant in detecting patients with early keratoconus and considering treatment when appropriate. Similar advances are occurring in other ocular diseases, including ocular surface disease, age-related macular degeneration, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy. Although we may not always be the ones providing these new services, if we do not stay abreast of the advances, we are doing our patients a disservice. Filling the gaps. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the median age in the United States rose from 32.9 years in 1990 to 35.3 in 2000 and 37.2 in 2010. Considering that age is a major risk factor for numerous conditions such as glaucoma, ocular surface disease, and age-related macular degeneration, this means that the prevalence of many ocular conditions will increase. Compounding this increased need for healthcare services is a diabetes epidemic. Currently, 30.3 million people in the United States are diagnosed with diabetes, and 84.1 million more have prediabetes. Due to the increasing age and rate of obesity of the U.S. population, the number of adults with diabetes has more than tripled within the past 20 years. With the increasing prevalence of diabetes, the resulting influx of patients will cause a significant burden on eye care providers unless more practitioners become available to provide appropriate ocular evaluations. Optometrists are perfectly positioned to absorb these patients due to our expertise, numbers, and geographic distribution. Fortunately, all of the optometry programs in the United States are training optometrists to provide both refractive and medical eye care. For those looking to refresh or further improve their medical eye care skills, great resources to pursue include continuing education, partnerships with industry, research journals, and trade journals. Industry representatives can provide a treasure trove of information. They can help connect clinicians with published research data, clinical data, and practice management tips. Medical technology companies have an in-house clinical data or imaging atlases that can help you familiarize yourself with the latest technology. These companies aren't only in the business of developing and selling equipment, they also have an interest in helping clinicians to incorporate new technologies into their practices. Contact lenses and pharmaceutical company representatives often have data about your practice you may not realize they have. Based on prescribing trends, these representatives can help scrutinize your office to help develop practice management solutions that can streamline your practice. Trade journals such as Modern Optometry also offer a wealth of information, and many are free and easily consumable either online or in print. Within these publications, professional experts discuss a wide range of eye care topics and often review topical research trends to help optometrists stay ahead of the curve and continue to evolve as clinicians. Stepping up to the plate. As changes occur in healthcare and the U.S. population, there will be many opportunities for optometrists to practice more medical care. Although investments in equipment such as OCT, perimetry, and funnest photography are necessary to care for the full gamut of patients, these instruments will help to elevate your practice. Rendering medical eye care generates exams within the practice due to the need for follow-up care and the addition of new services to the office. The most common auxiliary tests are billable to insurance companies when medically necessary. The same patients whom optometrists see refractive needs often have medical needs that be kept in-house, improving continuity of care. By providing more services, the practice can attract patients who would otherwise have been cared for elsewhere. Medical optometry is not the future. Medical optometry is simply one aspect of optometry that we all practice daily.
Healthcare is changing, and patients will need to be careful whether optometry steps up to the plate or not. Pushing toward the right end of the refractive medical spectrum is the future. Luckily, we have many experts, conferences, and trade journals to lead us there. As you know, the foundation of medical optometry involves the treatment of various ocular pathologies. The subfocus of the March issue, which happened to be on the foundation of medical optometry, includes an article about treating ocular surface disease in glaucoma patients, which author Justin Schweitzer of Vance Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, reads for you here. Glaucoma affects nearly 2% of the U.S. population over age 40, and ocular surface disease may affect upward of 20% of the population. The prevalence of both diseases is well known to increase with age, so it is no surprise that ocular surface disease often exists in a concomitant state in more than 60% of glaucoma patients. Adding to this, recent studies show that anti-glaucoma medications may exacerbate and even cause ocular surface disease and meibomian gland dysfunction. As physicians, we understand that glaucoma permanently and irreversibly damages vision, whereas comparatively, ocular surface disease may affect vision but does not commonly cause permanent sight loss. We take swift action to prevent patients from losing their sight to glaucoma by placing them on multiple drops or recommending surgical intervention whereas debilitating ocular surface disease can sometimes go unresolved because additional topical therapies are seen as too burdensome. It is my job to monitor the health of my patient's eyes, and in my opinion, this includes making sure that any ocular surface disease is under control. Fortunately, in recent years, we have gained access to an array of diagnostic tools and technologies that allow us to better visualize and manage ocular surface disease pathology. To identify ocular surface disease, I have patients complete a modified standard patient evaluation of eye dryness, speed questionnaire, at their initial and follow-up examinations. Those with ocular surface disease markers and complaints of ocular surface issues undergo a careful slit lamp examination with corneal and conjunctival staining. Based on those results, patients may have tear osmolarity tests, tear breakup time assessments, or a mybography scan to identify meibomian gland dysfunction. Glaucoma treatment compliance suffers when patients have dry or irritated eyes. My first line of treatment for ocular surface disease depends on the severity of the disease and whether it is aqueous deficient, evaporative, or a combination of the two. Typically, I recommend over-the-counter artificial tears and ointments or prescribe cyclosporin or lafitagrass. I also consider punctal plugs. If MGD is present, I recommend microblephron exfoliation treatment and a thermal pulsation treatment. If the ocular surface disease is severe and significant corneal staining exists, I use amniotic membrane grafts. Unfortunately, many patients with glaucoma are reluctant to add more drops to their regimens. In cases of significant ocular surface disease, patients may feel discomfort no matter what they put in their eyes and, consequently, may cease to administer their glaucoma medications altogether. We know that the vast majority of patients struggle to maintain compliance with topical glaucoma therapy and that nearly half discontinue treatment altogether within six months. Thus, alternative non-topical treatment options for ocular surface disease may have to be considered. The selected treatment plan is dependent on the type of dry eye disease or ocular surface disease that the patient presents with. In some cases, surgical procedures such as selective laser trabeculoplasty or microinvasive glaucoma surgery may allow patients to reduce the number of glaucoma medications, which may result in a reduction of ocular surface disease symptoms. Ocular disease triggered by myeloid gland dysfunction often responds well to non-drop treatment options such as thermal pulsation, 
nutraceuticals, or neural stimulation. In acute cases, I am comfortable pausing the patient's glaucoma drop regimen and prescribing a short-term, low-dosage corticosteroid to reduce inflammation while patients can currently take an oral nutraceutical. Patients find the short-term dosing schedule tolerable and are more likely to comply with this approach versus a long-term treatment plan. In the majority of patients with mild to moderate glaucoma, the temporary suspension of glaucoma therapies is inconsequential, and disease progression is unlikely to occur in this short two-week time period. Conversely, there is a high probability of disease progression in patients placed on long-term, cumbersome ocular surface disease treatments who are non-adherent to topical glaucoma therapy. High-quality nutraceutical supplements can be particularly beneficial for patients who struggle with drop compliance. However, it is important to counsel patients that with this approach, improvement is gradual and they may need to use supplement for several months before evaluating their comfort level. Thus, I often combine nutraceuticals with an initial corticosteroid treatment plan. Patients experience immediate relief while the micronutrients build up and eventually begin to take effect. Patient preference and cost are important when considering nutraceutical supplements. I write down my brand recommendation and advise patients to look for supplements that include GLA, EPA, and DHA. Although the recent dry eye assessment and management DREAM study raised questions about the use of high-dose fish oil supplementation alone for patients with moderate to severe dry eye disease, GLA alone or with small amounts of EPA and DHA has demonstrated efficacy in improving dry eye signs and symptoms. A randomized controlled double mass study demonstrated that a supplement containing GLA, EPA, and DHA significantly improved symptoms suppressed markers of conjunctival inflammation, and maintained corneal smoothness in patients with dry eye. I prefer recommending a supplement with known quality and efficacy because supplements that patients find on their own may be of variable quality or labeled in a confusing way. After six weeks, I follow up to monitor compliance and progress. Ocular surface disease is highly prevalent among patients with glaucoma, but its treatment does not need to take a back seat. Physicians can treat ocular surface disease without derailing topical glaucoma medications. With the excellent diagnostic tools available to identify ocular surface disease, we can offer patients treatments that contribute positively to their overall quality of life. Surgical procedures such as selective laser trabeculoplasty and microinvasive glaucoma surgery may reduce patients' reliance on glaucoma medications and potentially provide relief from ocular surface disease. However, patients can benefit from less non-invasive topical approaches such as nutraceuticals, thermal pulsation, and neural stimulation. One of Maud's regular columns is myopia management, and Kim Dong, clinical assistant professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Optometry, authored the very first article on why myopia control should be a priority. Here's her article. Myopia is often seen as an eye-focusing disorder, easily corrected with monofocal spectacles. However, a rising prevalence of myopia has led to a greater emphasis on prescribing myopia control. Myopia affects 27% of people worldwide, and that prevalence is projected to double by 2050. In some Asian countries, the prevalence of myopia can be as high as 84%. This article provides several perspectives on the importance of myopia management. The medical perspective. It is essential for clinicians to consider myopia not just as a refractive disorder, but also a disease with the potential to cause permanent vision loss. 
Myopia is associated with an increased risk of retinal complications, cataracts, and glaucoma. The World Health Organization defines high myopia as spherical equivalent objective refractive error of greater than or equal to minus 5 diopters in either eye. Depending on the magnitude, myopia can increase the risk of retinal detachment by 2.4 to 24.0 times and primary open angle by 2 to 2.5 times. Even low amounts of myopia are associated with increased risk of developing posterior subcapsular cataracts. To look at the risk ratios for ocular complications from different perspectives, think of moderate systemic hypertension. A systolic blood pressure of 150 millimeters of mercury to 159 increases the risk of stroke by 2.2 times. Most doctors would agree that this level of elevated blood pressure warrants efforts to prevent stroke and other cardiovascular disease with education and preventative medicine. Although myopic ocular complications may be considered less serious than strokes, the high risk of ocular complications associated with high myopia are concerning and should be addressed clinically. The economic perspective. In a cross-sectional survey distributed globally to eye care professionals, 67.5% of respondents reported prescribing only single vision spectacles or contact lenses to manage myopia. Of these practitioners, 35.6% reported being concerned about the costs associated with myopia control. Practitioners must not be nearsighted about the cost of myopia control. The cost of optical correction in Singaporean adults alone is estimated to be about $755 million. Vitaly et al. estimated the direct cost of refractive error in the United States to be between $3.9 billion and $7.2 billion per year. The cost of eye care is expected to increase significantly due to the increasing prevalence of high myopia. High myopia causes even greater direct optical costs for patients. For example, high refractive index spectacles lenses are typically costlier than polycarbonate lenses. Complications from high myopia can lead to increased direct care costs from surgery and doctor's visits. Indirect costs may be resulted from decreased productivity as a result of vision loss. The patient perspective. The patient's quality of life is an aspect of myopia that is often overlooked by practitioners. However, it should be considered in managing myopia. A survey found that orthokeratology had a positive effect on children's quality of life with increased self-confidence and participation in extracurricular activities reported. Similar results were found in a randomized study comparing the quality of life of pediatric contact lens wearers with spectacle wearers. Pediatric contact lens wearers reported improved activity, appearance, and satisfaction with correction compared to spectacle wearers. The practice management perspective. Patient education is the most important component of building a myopia control practice. Given that health literacy is a common problem in the United States, it is important to clearly define myopia and its potential future complications for patients. One study showed that a limited ability to correctly define myopia was not associated with sex, income, or education. Therefore, our clinic attempts to explain diagnosis and treatment to patients in simple ways to improve their understanding. To further this goal, our clinic has created consent forms in Spanish and English, brochures, and a user-friendly website. 
It is also important to explain to patients why myopia progression occurs. Development of myopia is linked to genetics. Patients have 2.08 times greater chance of becoming myopic with one myopic parent and 5.07 times greater chance with two myopic parents. Research also suggests that increase in myopia prevalence is associated with spending less time outdoors and not necessarily with near work. To explain to patients that myopia is likely due to a mixture of environmental and genetic factors, our patients always receive a brochure and fact sheet that includes citation of important myopia publications so they have the opportunity to review the data for themselves. A top public health priority. The increase in myopia prevalence has become a major public health concern. It is estimated that there will be almost 1 billion high myopes worldwide by 2050. The time is to act now. It is important for practitioners to view myopia as a genetic and environmental condition with clear visual and economic effects. The increase in worldwide urbanization, which appears to promote myopia development combined with the increase in economic burden associated with myopia makes combating myopia a top public health priority. Providing myopia control education to patients is now considered a standard of care. Building a myopia control practice can help you provide the highest quality care for our young patients. To round out the audio content from the March issue of MOD, we include Damon Durker's article from the issue's Collaborative Eye section which zeroed in on the topic of cataract surgery. Dr. Durker is Director of Optometric Services at Eye Surgeons of Indiana. Listen to him discuss the importance of the corneal surface in cataract surgery. Incremental improvements in technology during the past two decades have transformed cataract surgery into refractive surgery. Patients now expect outcomes rivaling those of LASIK and similar procedures, and in many cases, these outcomes can be achieved. However, a sizable minority of patients who have uneventful modern cataract surgery are ultimately unhappy with their visual outcome. Patients may achieve 20-20 uncorrected vision, but poor vision quality, fluctuating vision, and ocular discomfort caused by undiagnosed or undertreated ocular surface disease can derail the surgeon's best efforts. In the patient's eyes, these symptoms represent a surgical complication I continue to have patients tell me that they never had dry eye prior to their cataract surgery. As patient uh, post-operative expectations grow and the prevalence of dry eye increases, it is paramount that optometrists and ophthalmologists work collaboratively to identify and treat these patients uh, with uh, perioperative OSD appropriately. Ocular surface disease is highly prevalent in the cataract population. The prospective health uh, assessment of cataract patients' ocular surface, or FACO study, evaluated patients presenting for cataract surgery. Remarkably, 77% of these patients scheduled for surgery had corneal staining. 50% had actually had central corneal staining, noted in their preoperative assessment. And 63% had a tear breakup time of 5 seconds or less. Only 22% of these patients carried an established diagnosis of dry eye. A more recent study by Gupta utilizing point-of-care diagnostics showed similar results. 80% of patients presenting for cataract surgery had either an abnormal ocular surface detected during slit limb examination, tear film hyperosmolarity, or increased MMP9 levels on the ocular surface. Tear film hyperosmolarity is especially important as this contributes to tear film instability, 
which affects preoperative measurements used to determine IOL power. At Petropolis found that patients identified with tear film hyperosmolarity, regardless of the presence of symptoms of ocular surface disease, had greater variability in their uh, K readings and IOL calculations compared with those who had normal osmolarity. A high-quality tear film is even more critical in patients opting for multifocal, accommodating, or extended depth of focus IOLs. So how can optometrists and ophthalmologists work together to find and treat these patients before they move forward with a once-in-a-lifetime chance to improve their vision? Here are three key pearls that we use in my practice to achieve success. Pearl number one, identify and treat ocular surface disease as early as possible. I'm a strong advocate for the use of a dry eye symptom screening questionnaire for every patient presenting for a comprehensive examination or surgical evaluation. In my practice, we use a modified speed questionnaire. If common symptoms such as fluctuating vision, eye fatigue, or burning are identified, the workup technician will obtain point-of-care testing, including an assessment of tear film osmolarity, tear matrix uh, MMP9, and mybography. These tests have become essential for me to make an accurate diagnosis and develop a targeted treatment plan. Point-of-care diagnostics also streamline the evaluation, generate additional revenue, and serve as important patient education tools. After additional history and risk factor assessment is obtained, I perform a careful evaluation of the ocular surface after installation of sodium fluorescein dye and often lysamine green via a saline moistened strip. It is critical that a measurement of meibomian gland function be included, and I generally use the meibomian gland evaluator for this. Careful assessment of the ocular surface should be performed for all patients, regardless of whether they are symptomatic or not. Southern photography to capture images of anterior blepharitis, corneal and conjunctival staining, and other significant pathology can be valuable. These images are especially helpful when educating patients who are relatively asymptomatic. I often tell patients that their condition is serious enough that we need to delay their surgery, uh, but an image of their meibomian gland dropout or central uh, SPK tends to be even more effective. Waiting to properly identify and treat these issues only delays the patient's ability to proceed with surgery. In most situations, treatment should be initiated by the primary care optometrist and the patient's surface optimized even before the referral is made. Pearl number two, preoperative treatment should be aggressive. It is now accepted that dry eye is generally a chronic, multifactorial, immune-mediated inflammatory disease. In my experience, patients preparing for cataract surgery often need aggressive multimodal therapy. This goes beyond st standard therapy recommendations such as lipid-based artificial tears, omega fatty acid supplements, warm compresses, and lid hygiene products. In patients with moderate to severe ocular surface disease symptoms and or significant corneal staining, I judi judiciously prescribe a lodopredinol etabinate ophthalmic gel as it works very quickly by inhibiting T cells on the ocular surface. A few weeks at two to four times a day dosing will benefit most patients. Additionally, in symptomatic patients or those who have minimally symptomatic disease but are interested in an advanced technology IOL, I routinely prescribe topical cyclosporin or lefitograst. If patients don't improve within three to four weeks with this regimen, their ocular surface is likely too compromised to seriously consider recommending a multifocal or extended depth of focus IOL. 
Some patients with persistent keratopathy will require treatment with a cryopreserved amniotic membrane before surgery can reasonably be considered. In patients with poor meibomian gland function, I've had great success with the combination of microblepharal exfoliation and vectored thermal pulsation with lipoflow. In my satellite office, I've also started to incorporate treatment with ILUX as an alternative option for clearing meibomian gland obstructions. Finally, addressing the lid biofilm with a lid cleansing agent is helpful in controlling symptoms and reducing bacterial load that may increase the risk for postoperative endophthalmitis. I generally favor agents containing hypochlorous acid as they are effective and well-tolerated. Pearl number three, briefly delaying surgery until the ocular surface is stabilized is in the patient's best interest. Educate patients that dry eye is a visual disorder and that ignoring it will potentially compromise the results of their surgery. A pristine ocular surface will also improve their chances of being a candidate for an advanced technology IOL. Dry eye signs and symptoms may worsen temporarily with any ocular surgery, but aggressive preoperative management will help minimize this risk. And if a patient makes it to the surgical evaluation with undiagnosed or undertreated disease, ophthalmologists should resist the temptation to proceed with surgery until this has been rectified. Ocular surface disease is the number one cause of suboptimal cataract surgery outcomes. With appropriate screening and diagnostic protocols, combined with aggressive treatment and a brief delay in getting to the operating room, it certainly doesn't have to be. That does it for the first episode of the ModPod. To read these and the other articles from our March issue, visit modernod.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ModOptometry, on Facebook at ModOptom, and on LinkedIn at Modern Optometry. We love feedback, so if you want to drop us a line to let us know how we're doing or to suggest future content, email us at modernod at bmctoday.com.